What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with another trademark Hardwood Knox mailbag. Like I said, I'm trying to do two of these a week. This one will be Discord specific unless I get random questions on YouTube or via uh Twitter, which I got one random Twitter, not random, but I had a Twitter question that did not come via Twitter solicitation. Very quickly, though, before we cannonball into it, if you have not done so already, please remember to throw us that permanent subscription. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It helps me out, helps the podcast out a ton. If you're listening to the podcast via podcast player for the first time, throw us that permanent subscription, download every episode. We have a lot of fun around here and a lot of good discussion, which is also why you should join our Discord channel. The link to that is in the podcast description and also our YouTube description. Follow us on all the socials as well. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, it's on the screen and also in the description, or it's in the podcast description if you're listening to this. This podcast is everywhere and anywhere, basically. So follow it, and please, it helps us out the most if you just subscribe on both mediums, podcast, YouTube. Like, comment, help us break the algorithm, make the algorithm love us back, whatever, on YouTube, especially during the dog days of summer. Your subscriptions and views and likes and comments are very appreciated. Whew! Let's dive right into this mailbag. I have so many good questions. I'm hoping I don't wind up going too long because then I will split this into a two-part episode and just release one of them over the weekend uh, to ensure that every subject is given uh, enough time. But there are a couple of questions that I could see myself rambling and rambling about. And why not start off with them? Uh, Demos Quill had a few good questions for this mailbag. Asked, can Wendell Carter Jr. do an, another level up with Paolo Bancaro on the team as the floor general? Statistically... WCJ's fourth year is almost identical to Sabonis's third year. Um, does he indeed step on his footsteps? They're both undersized mobile bigs anyway. Uh, I've never thought of Wendell Carter Jr. as undersized. I will say, Demos, that I did not realize how similar his numbers were to uh, Sabonis's in, uh, in, in his fourth season. I, I looked those up, and they're like, they're eerily similar. It's absurd the thing i will say is i don't think he's going to follow in Sabonis' footsteps just because when you go back and watch how he's accumulating some of these numbers uh there feels like there's i don't know what the word is but one wcj is not the passer that Sabonis is because he's not asked to be uh he's also not going to enjoy the same type of post-up volume that was 12 percent of wcj's plays last year and he averaged by the way 1.21 points per possession in the post and so he's a good passer uh, I think what I'm very interested in is I view him as having some more like outside in juice where Sabonis is going to operate methodically in those situations. Even if, even if you see him bring the ball up the court, uh, WCJ just seems to operate faster there. And so that's not to say that he would be better, but I'm more interested in him as like this uh, explosive decision maker, or even just, I like him more. think he can fit more alongside someone like Bancaro and Jalen Suggs, and anyone else, like a Markel Fultz who needs the ball or wants the ball in their hands on the Magic. You look at WCJ screening and off-ball movement, that looked to get a lot better last year. Um, I trust, long-term, Wendell Carter Jr.'s uh, jump shots. He shot 38.5% on catch-and-shoot threes after the All-Star break. Maybe some noise in there when you look at uh, some of the games that he played. What I'm most interested in seeing is how he deals with what will presumably be Less attention because also look at him when he catches the ball on the roll. Like defenses were showing two or three bodies toward him, towards him more than you would expect. That can't happen if you have Ben Caro and Suggs is playing well and Franz Wagner's on the court. And so that extra space, I think, will allow him to put more pressure on the rim since he was a little bit below average there when you're looking at his volume. Some of that had to do by design or by choice, just looking at some of his bailout options, little flip shots and touch a, a little bit further away from the basket. 
but I'm anxious to see if they run Vancaro WCJ pick and rolls, which they absolutely should, or even if they're not, if it's Fultz, Wendell Carter Jr. pick and rolls, or Suggs, Wendell Carter Jr. pick and rolls. The Magic, while I don't think that they're just like chock full of good shooters now, the roster is currently constructed with Bancaro in the fold. They brought Mobamba back. Gary Harris comes back. Terrence Ross is still there for now. Um, they have enough like surrounding shooters, Franz Wagner, of course, to where WCJ is going to have easier paths to get to the rim. And so I don't know if WCJ will be as central to what Orlando is doing offensively if you want to see him have the ball in his hands. But I don't think he needs to be that type of player to have an impact. And look, let's just call it what it is. There's a chance that Wendell Carter Jr. is still an all-star. He is He's young enough to where he can continue to improve. He just wrapped up his age 22 season. Uh, he was largely written off because of Chicago. And his passes mattered. They weren't like super complicated passes, but teammates shot almost 54%. Uh, on their looks when they took a shot after a pass coming from him. And also there's more like, I want to say laterality, which probably isn't a word to Wendell Carter Jr.'s offensive game. If you put the ball in his hands, uh, he, I think it was a game against the dubs last year. He hit like this two or three dribble escape dribble three. Uh, and it was just glorious to watch. And so he's been a player I've been thinking about a lot of what is his ceiling. It feels undefined. Do I think he's ever going to be an all NBA center? I'd probably bet against it. But if you told me that Wendell Carter Jr. was in the all-star discussion this season, uh, I'm not going to be shocked. There's more mobility from him on defense than there is alongside, uh, or not or not alongside, but from Domas Sabonis as well. And I also like the fact that Sabonis can make, can devastate as a playmaker from a standstill. And even just like if you're going to put the ball in his hands and tell him to try and get his way towards the basket, there's just more like, jet fuel or pop to what Wendell Carter Jr. is doing. He might be best if he's catching the ball on the move, but like he can get going downhill off a standstill, like, and really get going. And so I view him as more complimentary than Sabonis, which is not to say better, but I think easier to fit in inside this ecosystem where the magic are, are going to want to feed plenty of other players. And quite frankly, when you look at Suggs and Bancaro and even Fold specifically, they're going to need to feed a bunch of other players. And so I, I just think this is all to say, I think Sabonis and Carter Jr., despite the statistical similarities, are just much different players um, by the avenues through which they got there. And so that's not a problem. I don't think that Wendell Carter Jr. needs to be the number one or number two option on the offensive end. This is someone who I think could just, within the complete flow of the offense, I don't want to say not having plays drawn up for him, but not having to toss the ball to him in the post or, or um, you know, like, from the high elbows or just like above, like beyond the arc and have him run these handoffs. I don't think he honestly needs that. He can get to 15 plus points like he did last season, maybe even flirt with 20 entirely within the flow of the offense. And I'm just, again, very intrigued to see what he might do with either, you know, is he going to take more threes? 3.5 attempts per game is fine, but you want to see that number go up or does he just have even higher quality twos to take because of the extra space that should be, around him and, and his passing might improve from there too, because like I said, he did a really good job diming up cutters and even finding some shooters beyond the arc and he will swing the ball very quickly as well. And so he's the type of player where you scale his game to a better version of the magic and you have to envision Wendell Carter jr. Actually being better. And so you want to see the three point clip come up. I think getting the extra rim pressure will hopefully bring up his uh, free throw volume. That's tough to do sometimes when the ball is not perpetually in your hands like I said, though, when he gets going and is and is going downhill hard, teams should be able to foul him. Needs to bring the free throw clip up, sub 70% last year for the season. Not great. 
um, good, uh, certainly a good enough rebounder to play a center position. So the, the question here, can Wendell Carter Jr. level up? Absolutely. And this is someone that I would watch as, look, if you want to pick Suggs, I would not pick rookies as part of this exercise. If you want to say that Wagner is going to do it, but if you're looking at a breakout candidate on the Orlando Magic relative to what happened last season, it's Wendell Carter Jr. feels like, no, he might not have the most runway to improve, but it might just be set up best for him to improve based off what we just saw last season. And so I'm not ruling out an all-star trajectory for Wendell Carter Jr. at this point. And frankly, you shouldn't either. I know players can sort of be uh, considered what they are entering year five, but like that's not always the case. If you, you told me that Wendell Carter Jr. was just worked his way into the discussion for most improved player, uh, I'd be a little bit surprised unless the context of his game changed a ton. He probably deserved that buzz. Uh, this past season that he didn't really generate when you look at who the, all the other candidates and the ultimate winner was, but I wouldn't write him off of that discussion. You tell me there are just so many possibilities left for Wendell Carter jr. And yes, I'll bet against all NBA because you need to be a top three center uh, or I guess the way they fuck with positions. Now you could be like a top six center technically and get it as a forward. Anyway, I don't know if he gets there, but this is someone who's really good. And that's why I think when there've been a lot of questions about, would you rather have the magic or the Pistons next season specifically? It's why I lean towards the magic because they, they have a Wendell Carter jr. In addition to, and, and Franz Wagner, but in addition to like having the Bancaro and Suggs and how that applies to the Pistons, having Kate Cunningham and, and Jaden Ivey among others, obviously great question. Uh, but the magic look, they were already worth watching. I'm, I just think that there's still room for Wendell Carter jr. To grow. Even if, like I said, uh, there's less centrality to the way that he's used on, on offense. The Bronx with hallowed ground asks, and I thought way too much about this scenario and it's cropped up before, but the Bronx with hallowed ground asks, with the rumors about the Celtics possibly shopping Jalen Brown, would you would do a Brown for Brandon Ingram trade? I feel like the Ingram Zion CJ combo is kind of clunky. They all kind of need the ball a lot. I like the idea of Zion Brown, CJ Brown could help bolster the defense next to Zion and CJ and scaling back his uses from what the Celtics needed would make him a better player. Ingram isn't the defender that Brown is, but I think he offers more self-creation and playmaking. What are your thoughts? So to start with, I, aside from the deal itself, I agree with everything you said about the difference between these players. Brandon Ingram, if you need to jumpstart a pick and roll, jumpstart an offensive set, uh, get someone's, rely on someone's maybe in-between touch, you want him uh, on your team. He's just a better creator right now. And then Jalen Brown is I don't want to say he he's a complimentary player, but he's not just three and D. He does more than that. I think it's easier to plug him into all these other situations and he will work on more teams than Brandon Ingram might. What I will say is I don't view Zion, CJ, and Ingram as clunky because you want to have as many primary playmakers on your team as possible so long that what they do can spill over to off the ball. And for Zion, CJ, and Brandon Ingram... It does. CJ is a very good shooter off the ball, and I think he showed some onset chemistry with the Pelicans. Zion coming back changes a lot of that, but Zion, despite not being this high-volume jump shooter, he is devastating off the ball. Get the ball to him in transition, or if he's setting screens and going downhill, or you're just throwing him lobs, he he works off the ball. And then Brandon Ingram, yeah, his off-ball touches improved as well. He's not this high-volume catching three-point shooter, but he's become a rock-solid one. And so I think he scales to more situations than people will currently credit him for it might be harder to fit him in but i think that you want to load up your roster with guys who can make plays on the ball especially if they're if they can exist off the ball what's interesting about this is the pelicans would still probably use jalen brown defensive juice and i think brown gives you more pure rim pressure ingram likes to bail on, on his drives um, more than brown does 
the trade-off there is that Brown can get tunnel vision, but he was an excellent finisher around the rim and he will burst through the soul of defenses when he gets going downhill. I also think that you look at his turnover to assist ratio Browns, and you also look at some of the passes he throws, some of the turnovers that he actually commits. I understand why some people might be low on him and think that he's never going to make the Tatum like jump as a playmaker, let alone becoming someone like, you know, like a, like a LeBron that like that was never on the table. I almost feel like he's an underrated passer too. And that we've exacerbated the issues with this handle just because we saw it happen. Um, in the playoffs. And yeah, that, that matters because if it's, if it's the extra attention he's getting um, or if he's capitalizing predominantly on the attention that Jason Tatum is drawing, that has to change the the complexion of how we view his game. But it feels like there's more on ball creativity there. You saw him like kind of stop and turn and fade and pop around the basket when he gets going and he can hit those shots. You don't want to slow things down and have him run a pick and roll. And so if you're Boston, I get the appeal of having Brandon Ingram. So these are two very valuable players what I think is also interesting and deserves to be mentioned, Ingram is about a year younger and has another year left on his deal. So he's more expensive, but where Brown is gonna is slated to become a free agent in 2024, uh, he does not have a player option. He just has two more guaranteed years left. Uh, Brandon Ingram isn't slated for free agency until 2025. It's also because Brandon Ingram's final year salary is $36 million. This will tie into, I think, our last question in the mailbag, by the way, but it's more likely that he will extend off of that number because 120% raise off of that would be 43 million or whatever it is. And so that's closer to what would be his absolute max uh, at the time, unless the salary cap, there's no smoothing and that thing just fucking jumps. And so you don't have to necessarily risk him getting into free agency where with Brown it's fate complete, just extending him off that number he's making. Look, so you're talking, having that extra year of Ingram and the fact that he got a max his final year salary that you would extend off of is $36 million. Brown's final year salary, which was submax, and it's going to expire a year earlier, uh, he would be extending off of 30.7. That's a huge difference when you're looking at someone, again, who hasn't even been given his first max yet. Uh, now you sort of sprinkle in the fact that there have been trade talks surrounding Brown with, with Kevin Durant. Uh, maybe he becomes a little bit more disenchanted with Boston, or uh, like the question poses, do these players sort of fill needs for either team where the Celtics get that other creator that they want while uh, New, or- New Orleans shores up its defense and then gets, I think you can call Jalen Brown a better shooter, not a better off the dribble shooter, uh, but a better shooter or, or more reliable floor spacer, however you want to want to frame it. My gut says because of the defensive value that Jalen Brown brings that the Celtics won't view uh, Ingram's extra year of his salary, especially when it's more than Brown's, um, and maybe just the extra control as enough of an upgrade uh, over Brown. And that's more like you're talking about Brown being involved in a conversation for Kevin Durant, who's one of the greatest shot creators and makers alive of all time. Brandon Ingram is not that. And so while he could be the second engine of your offense, um, I do still think that if you pulled a bunch of executives, they would still prefer Brown because of the defense, because there's a little bit more plug and playness on offense, and they're going to appreciate Brown's rim pressure and maybe even overlook some of the passing issues he has. And I know people have said the words that are coming out is his offensive game is mechanical, robotic, however you want to rigid. Uh, and there is a certain rigidity to the way that he plays, but there's also more malleability too. And so you might take that, you know, we're talking about, by the way, Jalen Brown is not like he's 80. He just wrapped up his age 25 season. So he can still get better. And so that's what my gut says. When I personally do this trade, I don't know if I would necessarily do it for either side because I think the Pelicans' best path 
to being uber successful is to stack the deck with on-ball creators who don't overlap too much with each other. We don't know what's going on with Zion's health. CJ McCollum isn't exactly um, super young at this point. And Ingram, earlier in his career, had some injury issues. We saw CJ deal towards the tail end of his time in Portland with some injury issues as well. You just want to hedge against those bets. And so you don't need the, the secondary or even like a second primary shot creator, let's call it, as much as Boston does right now since it's still is it brown is it brogdon is it marcus smart they're they're still asking that question so there's tatum and then there's still sort of a fuzziness on the number two pecking order um, but if you're new if you're new orleans still trying to pronounce it uh not the way that people hate it by the way so hopefully everyone appreciates the effort uh to try to remember if if you're new orleans i, I still think you need ingram and that you'd rather take the ceiling on his on ball creativity than have to acquire brown where even if it's just straight up and they're uh, I do believe that the money like in, in their current salaries would work straight up. We're talking about 28, seven versus 31. Yeah. So you can just trade them straight up. There's a chance that Boston would demand something else. And also just now you risk Brown getting to free agency one year sooner. And could he leave? Um, and I, like I said, the Zion element matters a lot to me where maybe Brown is just the better uh, catch and shoot guy. If you want Zion really operating on ball a ton, but you also want Zion to be your screener at points or to just get rolling towards the basket, even if it's from a standstill without a screen. Ingram's going to do a better job of finding him there. And I just, if there was a real fit issue between um, uh, New Orleans and, or CJ McCollum and Ingram and Zion, if I, if I was actually concerned about what that looked like, uh, maybe I would consider this. Also, I think the Pelicans, they showed a lot of defensive improvement after their three and 16 start, whatever it was under Willie Green especially he got them to get back in transition. Some of their rotations were just more on point where they were less like these wandering children lost in a supermarket or however you want to frame it, looking in the half court. And now with Herb Jones, Trey Murphy, uh, even Dyson Daniels coming in, it feels like they might be able to, and Larry Nance Jr. too, let's not forget about him. It feels like they might be able to upgrade their defense this season, especially if Zion improves there in, in any way whatsoever. So I don't think I would do this for either side. But it is a fascinating discussion if you flip-flop these two players, which team gets better? Or do they both somehow get worse? And I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question um, because you are giving up, you know, a, there, you're, there's a defensive downgrade just as much as there might be a shot creation downgrade. Going from Ingram to Jalen Brown for New Orleans, there's that shot creation downgrade. But there's that defensive downgrade still as much as Ingram has improved for Boston if they went from Brown to Ingram. Uh, and I also, finally... Like there's been, we haven't even heard that the Pelicans would be willing to give up Brandon Ingram in a Kevin Durant trade. If push comes to shove and Katie said, I want to go to New Orleans, and that was that was that, I do think that the Pelicans would they would try to construct a deal without Ingram. And I think that they could do that when you look at all the picks they have in addition to the youngsters. I do think they would if Katie said, I want to be in New Orleans. But that being said, we haven't even heard that he's not been deemed the level of untouchable as Scotty Barnes, mostly because the Pelicans have existed on the fringes of the the Kevin Durant discussions. We don't even know how involved they are. It's just us, these talking heads, discussing it, really. And there's been some chatter, like, behind the scenes. You'll hear it from people. So, yes, you know that there's a tangential involvement, but it's not front and center. And then also, do the Celtics, are you trading Jalen Brown if you're not getting Kevin Durant? We haven't. Is he eminently available? And if, look, that might be another podcast. Like, what could you get in a Jalen Brown trade that's independent of KD? And are there any worthwhile deals? I think... This would be worth at least thinking about for both sides. I have a feeling Pelicans fans would immediately say that it's not. That's just my guess. That's not an insult. Maybe it's not. I also have a feeling a bunch of Celtics fans would say, hey, 
no way. Uh, it's an interesting thought exercise. I ultimately wouldn't do it for either side. What do you think, though? Let me know. Let me know in the comments about this question, which I clearly thought and talked way too long about. Uh, Demos Cole again asks, how do you see Halliburton's scoring average this season? If we accept that he's a pass-first point guard, is it too difficult for him to reach the 20 points per game mark? Chris Paul only did it for two seasons out of 17, despite being efficient and clutch. Yeah, you're sort of spot on here. I don't want to pigeonhole Tyrese Halliburton to the Chris Paul 2.0 comps that he continues to get. But look at the, I don't even want to call it an opportunity. Look at the burden he was carrying when he first went to Indian. Shout out, uh, Rhett Bauer did discuss this in our Discord when this question came in. But Tyrese Halliburton averaged uh, 17.5 points in 36.1 minutes per game after uh, going to Indiana. That was at 12.4 field goal attempts slash 5.3 three-point attempts per 36 minutes. Uh, that's like, he's not going to get, I would think, a higher volume opportunity than that. Chris Duarte didn't play the final month of the season. Benedict Matherin's now in the fold. If Turner's there, I think you're probably going to try and feature him a little bit more, uh, just in advance of his free agency to see what you might have if you give him a little bit more self-creation. And so my bet would be, given how responsible he's going to be for setting up other guys, but also some players, specifically Duarte and Matherin, who are going to infringe upon his volume, I would bet against it next season. Uh, that being said, his path to getting there is actually shooting more. Uh, 12.4 attempts per 36 minutes is not like, especially on that roster that he was working with at the time. Uh, and can, can he jack up his three point volume? I won't rule it out. And like Timos Cole said, uh, Chris Paul did get there for a couple of seasons and it wouldn't like, if I set the over under on his scoring, where it was at Indy last year at 17.5. I honestly don't know what I would pick. I might take the over, but still go under 20 points. Uh, it's just, it doesn't feel wired into his game, Halliburton, to be that aggressive looking for his own shot. And I think what will be critical is either that changes or do they get him uh, taking more threes, either if it's as a catch and shoot guy or he's just more confident in his off the dribble looks. Do I think he'll ever get there for his career? I'm just going to say yes, because I am drunk on Tyrese Halliburton everything and the fact that he was just viewed as just like this like eminently like really good player who wouldn't dominate in any one facet i just don't i don't buy it the passing the live dribble passing is just there and it's fantastic and he is more of an off the dribble threat pretty much at every level certainly at the bottom level and at the top level threes threes and around the basket uh then people give him credit for this is someone who has in a very clearly to me an all nba ceiling and so i will say he gets there at least once in his career Let's revisit this in 10 years and see, see where I'm at. Christopher asks, with the Durant-Irving-Mitchell trades apparently at a standstill because of the haul Utah got for Gobert, do you think the NBA should come up with a set cost for certain caliber-level players? Like Pat Beverly would be worth X amount of players and X amount of picks, while Durant costs in picks and players would be more since he's a higher caliber player. I hope this makes sense. It did in my head, but then I started typing it. Thank you for this question, Christopher. Uh, and glad in Discord added, there is kind of already a rubric in place because the NBA, you need to match salary, not dollar for dollar, but be within the realm, depending on where you are relative to the luxury tax or salary cap. I, I would lean no, that I don't think they should or really can come up with a way um, to provide a uniform cost for players, just because I believe that the value of players is too subjective. And just look at the difference in criteria, not just age in this case, where it's like Kevin Durant is going to go into his age 30 or age 34 season, whatever it is, but Brandon Ingram, is about, Brandon Ingram is about to go into his age 25 season. That's a big difference. Contract length. Kevin Durant has four years left on his deal versus are you trading for someone who has one year left on his deal? Uh, and then there's also just 
the overall skill is how do you delineate between stars? Like, yeah, okay, there's one end of the spectrum of Beverly versus Durant, but like, what about Ingram versus Brown? Should those two cost the same on the trade market? That might be an example of two players that, that should come pretty close to that. And there's also just like player archetype where uh, certain teams don't need to give up as much for their last piece or even a star that they're acquiring, but maybe there's a team that desperately needs a five versus that definitely needs a wing or it depends on how they want to play. Minnesota was very clearly for a while in the market for a big, and that's why they gave up so much for Gobert, whether they should have given up that much. That's a different story. Uh, but like that, that is the market is it's just, it's supply and demand there. And then there's also the context under which the players leave. If it's the team deciding to trade a player, or if a player asks out, I do think that with what Christopher is suggesting um, would help teams that are kind of bent over a barrel. If players get closer to the end of their contract, the final year, two years left, whatever, it'd be like if Donovan Mitchell requested out uh, after this season with two years before free agency, or even after next season with one year left on free agency. And so I get that aspect of it, but I also think like the way that star trades have worked out, uh, worked out for the most part lately, we haven't seen like any team just get absolutely fucked in the return. It was widely considered that the Pelicans did well for Drew Holiday, that they did well for Anthony Davis. Uh, it's widely been considered that the Jazz did well for, for Rudy Gobert as well. Well, even the Spurs with DeMar DeRozan, you look at what Chicago gave up. Orlando for Nikola Vucevic um, with what Chicago gave up. And so this, and the Spurs with DeJounte Murray. And so I don't think that the, the only thing this would succeed in doing is repressing to me the star market for teams that have already spent all their assets for someone for a squad like the Lakers or now like the Timberwolves, it might make it easier for them to acquire a certain star. If they wanted to open up anything, the only thing I could really see the league doing is capping or uncapping the number of first rounders that get sent out in any deal where it's no, you can't trade more than in addition to step in rule, like three that that's the max. Uh, and then that that's like, you know, it might save some teams from themselves, but then it hurts teams where the star does ask for out or wants to leave or because you uncap and say, fuck the step in rule. Uh, or if it's a singular trade where, yeah, you have to abide by it. If you already have a pick uh, that is like, co like conveyable out in the distance, let's use the, like the Hornets as an example. But if you own all your first round picks, like the, the Suns, can you trade them in succession? How many years out that you want? So if they made tweaks, maybe it's along the lines of that, but I don't think that we could ever see a set value for stars versus um, what other, like any other players. And again, you still get into complications there, even if you tried, because how do you view like, yeah, Patrick Beverly is a different player from Durant, but he's also making like a larger salary than if you were to decide to move like a, a Kenrich Williams at this point. I think you could argue that Kenrich Williams has more value than a Beverly. And so the money that these players are making also matters since you have to match it as the team that's acquiring them. Uh, Nuggets fan Ev, how many games in the next season will Bones Highland become a household name? I'm just a little bit insulted that Nuggets fan Ev doesn't consider Bones Highland a household name. He's not. I'm just kidding. He's a, he's a hardwood Knox hold name. I don't really know what the fuck that means, but Nuggets fans know him. People who listen to this podcast know about him. I would say, go look at Denver's first back-to-back -back of the season. And then that's when he'll become the household name because he will be starting. Uh, Jamal Murray's not going to play both ends of back-to-backs, I imagine, uh, when uh, when the season starts, at least not at the beginning, maybe not all, all year, since he's coming back from that ACL injury. And I guess the Nuggets could go a different route to try and preserve their bench. Uh, Matt Moore, who does a fantastic job covering the entire league with the Nuggets as well, him and Adam Mahrez do the Lockdown Nuggets podcast. Uh, on a recent episode, they were discussing how Michael Malone doesn't really like to 
tinker with the bench rotation if it's working. And so let's just say the bench rotation is working because Bones Highland is a sixth man of the year candidate, uh, which I'll get into that in a second. So are you all of a sudden going to start Bruce Brown instead? Or are you like, does Ish Smith just step in and then you give him a quick hook? I don't know. But because of what's going to happen with Jamal Murray, and even can you count on Michael Porter Jr., I imagine Bones Highland, uh, he, it wouldn't shock me if he's one of those, I, I don't think a second year player will win it, but if he's tangentially mentioned in most improved player discussions, if he's mentioned in six man of the year discussions, a lot of people are wondering, well, how is he going to have the numbers to prop up six man of the year? Again, uh, you're looking at someone who is going to play a lot. Like if Murray's maybe on a minutes cap um, or not playing certain games or what's going on with Michael Porter jr. Does he need rest? It feels like there's always going to be uh, a vacuum in the offense, sort of in a good way where someone needs to step up and score a bunch. And look, this dude just averaged 10.1 points per game in 19 minutes. That is the equivalent of 19 points per 36 minutes. I have no doubt in my mind that he can juice up that actual rate. And it was juiced up. I'm trying to use the whole season as sort of the summation, but it was juiced up when you're looking at the, the end of the year for him, uh, that this could be someone who averages like 17 points in like 20 minutes per year. I mean, he was at basically through the final, uh, I don't know how many games through like March 10th through the end of the season. So 16 games, he was at, 14.6 points in 23.6 minutes. And so like, it wouldn't shock me. That's with him shooting 39.2% on threes. I got news for you. This dude is caps lock, italics, bold text shooter. Uh, the functional range that his pressure put like that his the functional pressure that his range puts on defenses. I just, it's absurd. And it, it defies logic. Uh, he will uncork mega deep threes down standstill triples from the corner and then just rain hellfire from the perimeter off the dribble. I was very impressed with his, his live dribble passing last year. And even Adam Adas and I kind of discussed that leading into the, to the nugget season. And you look at his season long shooting numbers and they somehow don't even accurately portray just how devastating he was. He hit 36.7% of his spot up triples and 36.9% of his pull up, uh, pull up trays. That is, is a fraction of the season. When you look at post all-star break, 47.2% on pull-up three-pointers post all-star break. That is just absolutely ridiculous. And so I would call him, and I think Matt Moore, I think I read something from him where he called him this. He's a pretty good six man of the year bet at this moment, I would say, uh, because voters love volume scores. And a lot of the times they're going to come from teams that received a lot of attention. Uh, you know, look at Jordan Clarkson, Tyler Hero as examples. So he would be a good bet to me. And I think he has another sort of dimension to reach as a passer. Uh, and it just wouldn't, it would not shock me if this is someone who, look, there will be room for him to play between 20 to 25 plus minutes per game throughout the season. Like there might be nights where he needs to eclipse 30, depending on what's happening with Murray or Michael Porter Jr. Or just what the Nuggets offense needs. And so it, like if he ends up at like 26 minutes per game, or even just 25, like if it's between 23 and 26, yeah, he's got a chance to win sixth man of the year, uh, even to someone who won't necessarily be part of all of Denver's closing units. So I think this is someone who's just sort of like a sleeping giant in terms of building blocks. There's a very real, if not likely, chance at this point that Bones Highland is the biggest X factor on this team when you're looking at none of the big three. And also, I think you can make the case that he's more important to the Nuggets' future at this point than a Michael Porter Jr., depending on how you feel about MPJ's reliability. Yeah, if MPJ hits on the player that he was and Jamal Murray never gets injured again, uh, okay, sure. But then Bones Highland all of a sudden becomes this X factor of there's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to talent on this team. Or 
if Bones Highland is that dude, if we're talking about Bones Highland in the same vein as Tyrese Maxey coming off of year two, all of a sudden the Nuggets' best trade offers get a lot more enticing, even though they don't have a ton of pick equity to offer. So Bones Highland, I do think he'll be a household name by the end of this season. And, and having to start some games, I imagine, will probably help him uh, get there. And just the Nuggets being good as well. If they're even going to be relatively healthy, we're talking about a team that I've already said they might be my title favorite right now. I'll expect them to finish no worse than like second or third in the West at this point, assuming relatively good health. Uh, they're a team to watch. He is one of Bones is one of my favorite prospects, and I'm very anxious to see what he does this season. Demos Cole has a third and final question for us. Is Draymond Green inching to team up with LeBron? What if GSW opts to trade him now instead of losing him next summer because they don't want to play him? Uh, I followed this up with my own question at Demos saying, did I miss something in the news cycle where Draymond was pushing to get out of Golden State? And he was just mentioning that the clutch sports element, and if Draymond wants a max and the Warriors don't want to give it to him, Draymond has that player option. Um, for the 23-24 season, and I don't expect him to get an extension. I, I don't view this as a possibility. Uh, I mean, the Lakers could technically have cap space next year if LeBron doesn't sign an extension, but if he's not, if LeBron's not taking a pay cut and you have Anthony Davis on your books, you're not going to be able to offer Draymond Green the max. Draymond Green would be an interesting target because I don't think he's a max player. Uh, he's going into his age 32 season, and so like you're talking about something that would then be going into their age 33 season, if, if we're in the 20 to $27 million range, it might become more workable for the Lakers and for other teams. Do I think he's a flight risk? Of the big four, or not the big four, let's call it the, like the, the five main warriors we're watching moving forward that, you know, that are not the, that, that are, that are not Jonathan Kaminga, James Wiseman, Moses Moody. Yeah, those guys matter. But between Wiggins, Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and Jordan Poole, I do view Green as just the biggest flight risk. Uh, he's not to say he's more of an independent thinker than all of them, but he might be the one that gets valued the least by the franchise. Or, you know, maybe Clay Thompson gets valued the least, but he's willing to accept a pay cut just because he dealt with injuries. He seems he's talked about wanting to retire a Warrior a little bit more. If the Warriors then got up and decided to trade Draymond Green this season, I don't know what you get from him just because he's on that expiring contract. So you need to ensure. Uh, that he's going to come back because you're not acquiring him as a rental because the Warriors aren't treating him as bad money uh, unless you're trying to get off bad money, but the Warriors aren't going to take that either. They need to, they need to continue to parlay green salary spot long-term into another one since they're not projected to have cap space. I don't think you're looking at, I'm not saying the Warriors should even go this route. Like I don't think Phoenix is giving you eight men stuff for Draymond green. Uh, when we get to January, I think you're probably looking at more like Jeremy Grant and picks from Portland, if you decided to go there, would Atlanta like consider Collins and Hunter? I don't think so. I mean, Draymond Green, Murray, and Capella would be a hell of a defensive trio, but they would also probably suck on offense. The one that kind of stands out to me is what if we know Kevin Durant's going to meet with uh, Nets governor Joseph Tsai and Kyrie's there and seems to be happy there. What if the Nets just decide, hey, we're going to run this back? Ben Simmons, Draymond Green gets kind of interesting there. I don't think it's anything that either team would seek out, but you can trust Draymond more at this point to be available than Ben Simmons. Uh, maybe you actually like his past relationship with KD where they've had conversations together since then. There's You're rolling the dice there, but like that would be something that could be potentially interesting. Um, but other teams, I could see like a Charlotte just being stupid, drunk, and mortgaging their future to have Draymond Green come in they want to have a defensive anchor in the middle and they're willing to pay him more than anyone if they, if they already have him on the books and, and on his bird rights. So 
that would be stuff to look at. I don't think you're getting a whole lot for Draymond Green if you look to trade him right now. And he's way more valuable to the Warriors. I think it's easy to say this. As a player that you have right now and keep moving forward um, than he is as a trade asset. And I would also say, I don't think he will expect to get the max. And I don't think there will be a team on the market next season that gives him the max. We could talk about, look, Charlotte, depending on what happens with Miles Bridges, they could have a bunch of money to spend. I don't think Cleveland's, I don't think maybe they would. Would Cleveland, another team that's projected to have cap space? No. Could Detroit give him like a huge offer? That might be semi-interesting. Uh, does him and Jalen Duran work at all? They might be okay with that. They're trying to play Bagley and, and Duran together, I would imagine, at certain points, or at least Bagley and, and Beef Stew, however you want to structure that front court. So maybe. Uh, the the Rockets, no. They could have a ton of cap. Indiana, I would say no. Uh, OKC might have some cap space. I'd probably say no, though. That would be interesting. Orlando could have cap space. That's a no for them going after them. Sacramento can get there depending on like they can get 20 plus million next year. I have them at depending on what they do with their own free agents. I that'd be, that'd be intriguing, but I would still vote. No, uh, the Spurs will have a ton of cap space, but I don't see them going after Draymond, uh, and Utah right now projects to have a bunch of cap space, but they don't seem like a team that would go after Draymond. So I just don't see the threat that would even give him the max to leverage against golden state. Really? I only see this going off the rails. If he wants, does he want money comparable to what he's getting now? Which twenty-seven million under the new tax, uh, new tax cap. If you're going in the one fifty plus million dollar range, yeah, fine. Uh, but if the Warriors aren't even willing to go that high, and they prefer to keep Wiggins and Pool, and then worry about Clay Thompson's next deal, um, there also might be a chance that if you let this season play out, which I think is smart for both sides, because I don't think Draymond Green, if he wants long term security, sure, but I don't think he's going to get a number that's bigger than the twenty-seven point six he would be owed in twenty-three, twenty-four right now. Uh, in an extension. And so building off that number, I feel like he would be right around that area. So if he wants to build up his value, playing it out makes sense. Also, he can wind up picking up that option. Maybe he has a down year and needs to build up his value again, or thinks that the cap landscape in 24, when Clay Thompson also comes off the books for the Warriors, maybe that would, would matter more. I think he ends up staying with the Warriors. I definitely don't think they end up trading him. I do not think that he ends up getting a max though, or anywhere near it, quite frankly, regardless of where he ends up. JT Alexander, do you, anyone else in the chat, have any harmless, unoffensive, mild takes for the new season? Uh, we had a couple of listeners respond to this, so I'll get to those after mine. This was a question I kind of wanted to pose on Twitter and see like what type of responses we got and read them off, but I don't think that uh, anyone, not anyone, I don't think enough people would have understood the context of it because we're, we're looking for like not spicy takes, maybe medium spice, mild takes, like the mild sauce from Taco Bell. And as, as a basis, JT Alexander said, mine is Porzingis going to be an all-star again. I was initially like jaw dropped at that suggestion. That felt super spicy. Uh, but Porzingis played well in Washington after the trade. If he stays healthy, sure, why not? I could see it happening. Also, it's it's the East. And so like the, uh, the big man votes, or if you're looking at pure centers, uh, it gets a little bit questionable after you know you have bam and Embiid, so maybe it's maybe it's possible but now like evan mobley and jared allen are in that fold it's still that feels more than mild jt that's all i'm gonna say i tried to frame mine off of that and so i have the two i have is wendell carter jr becomes an all-star that might be too spicy the other one i have is the pelicans will be better than the mavericks next season after dallas lost jalen brunson i tell you we haven't gotten to report cards or win totals yet but i have a feeling mavs and grizzlies fans are gonna come for me once again uh, I admitted my make when I was wrong about them this past season, but 
there's a pattern with me underestimating the Grizzlies. And then now if there becomes a pattern of me underestimating the Mavs, uh, I, I almost don't want to spew. I don't even want to spill out this take, but I'm going there. The Pelicans will be better than the Mavs. That's how high I am on the Pels. Demos Quill says, Terry Eason enters the rookie of the year combo. Scotty Barnes is an all-star. I think those are in theme with this. I initially thought maybe Ty Ty Washington would be the, uh, just the rookie that gets there. But I, I understand that, uh, Ty Ty Washington's summer league, except for a few moments, was on the rougher end. And then Thor has the Mavs won't get past the second round. That's I like, I'm sure that's in team with it. And Boston won't make the finals. Boston won't make the finals, I feel is like not spicy enough because the Bucks and uh, the Sixers and the Heat still exist. And so you need to believe that like Boston is entirely in its own tier. Uh, what takes do you guys have? Mild, unoffensive, reasonable ones that maybe a lot of people wouldn't share. So they're against consensus, but they're not stupid. Uh, let us know. Comments at me on Twitter. Uh, maybe I'll run a similar exor- thought exercise about this on Twitter. I just don't know how to frame it properly so that people will get it. Uh, it's a bit pre- And this question actually comes from Thor. It's a bit premature. With a new TV deal three years away, are we likely to see caps moving or another large jump like we had a few years ago? With that in mind, are we likely to see history repeat with large contracts given resulting in overvalued contracts? Are players on board with caps moving? Will expiring deals be more or less valued as teams try to gain cap space to lure multiple stars? Has the Kyrie KD situation made teams more leery? So I do think as an overarching answer would be twofold. I definitely think we get caps moving because I even think some teams are going to want to prevent what happened with Golden State in 2016. That is the expectation right now around the league is my expectation as well. I will be more than mildly to take, uh, to borrow the phrasing from the previous question. I'll be more than mildly surprised if we don't get caps moving. The other thing is I do think there is an effect even with the smoothing where we're still seeing these larger than normal incremental jumps where it might be 10 million a season or whatever. Um, I do believe that free agency is going to get sort of a, a, like a, a reinvention or we're going to you know return to at least a, a fraction of time where we'll see a lot more higher profile player movement or teams preparing for it because those cap jumps are still going to be larger than normal. And also, uh, these players and Jalen Brown is the perfect example. So I'm just going to use him, his number, his extension number right now to extend off of that doesn't make sense with the cap rising because he's under the max. He's not going to get anywhere near as max. If he was to accept 120% raise. So there are going to be players like him that will either angle to hit free agency in general, or maybe they'll even sign shorter term deals that they hit free agency right after, as this cap is supposed to get its biggest spike. Um, So I do believe we'll see more of that. Might just see players, like I said, sign more short-term deals. And I do think in turn, we'll see more teams preparing for a free agency, which would make expiring contracts more valuable, uh, depending on, are we at a point where so many contracts are short-term that maybe it doesn't matter as much? With that said, I think if we're expecting the, the cap the first cap smoothing to begin before expecting the first infusion to come in 2026. Yeah. If there are contracts that leak beyond that and you're looking to prepare for 2026, I absolutely think that uh, expirings will become more valuable and it will probably last maybe a year or two into it, like 27, 28, depending on how long the smoothing, the smoothing lasts. I don't know. And I don't, when we're looking at contracts in terms of bad contracts, I think teams probably learned their lesson from the summer of 2016. And because we're not going to see, a gargantuan jump like that, you're not going to get the the Timothy Mozgov like deal. I would I would argue that most of the questionable deals, most, uh, you know, people who don't like the Jalen Brunson contract, maybe you didn't like the Mitchell Robinson contract all that much. I'm not trying to just name mixed players here. Beal's not a good example there. Maybe you don't like the Marvin Bagley contract. 
these deals just look better because they become a smaller percentage of the cap. Lou Dort, that was overblown to begin with, especially because the 50 years of team option. But now all of a sudden he's $17 million a year. That's a lot different when you're talking about a, yeah, okay, he's $17 million now around there. Uh, but when you get that against the salary cap, that's 150, 160 million or more, that just doesn't matter as much. And so because there's going to be smoothing, so the jumps will still be pretty significant, but they won't be uh, as massive as 2016. I think teams will be inoculated against having those types of situations. And also just, if there are going to be more stars prepping to hit free agency, you're probably going to be a little bit more judicious in how you're spending anyway. Um, you're not going to throw the money to, to poach these non-stars. You're going to try and wait and go after the, the bigger fish. And maybe there's a couple overpays here or there because of that spike and maybe a market like a Charlotte, or if a team really wants a finishing piece is more desperate to, to reel in someone, or maybe we see it with like a veteran on the back end of his prime where it's just like, Oh, we have all this extra cap space. Let's go overpay Draymond green. If he decides to hit free agency again in 26, or if we see that happen with like Chris Middleton, as an example, um, neither players are slated to be a free agent in 26 or slated to be free agents before then, but they might be interesting exercises as well. Even maybe a Kyrie, a LeBron, but we have the Bronny element there. Um, but just like, other like a Jalen Brown again, or Brandon Ingram thinking about his next contract. Is he going to want to hit the open market or extend uh, players might sign shorter term deals to re-explore free agency. And the final element of this has a Kyrie Katie situation made teams more leery. I don't think so. I just feel like free agency has never been a particularly realistic path to rebuild your team. It's very much only worked uh, for a handful of franchises. That being said, like, if it was more common opportunity and this is how the Nets situation blows up, yeah, you might be more leery, but I don't think the Kyrie KD situation has scared teams from wanting to sign guys in, in free agency. There, you can argue the collateral damage is typically lower than if you were to acquire them via trade. And in the Nets case, it was like very specific to where there was almost just no collateral damage. They had all these, um, you know, they, they had all like, yeah, it would have cost them D'Angelo Russell. Um, that that summer, but like they still had Karis LeVert there, they still had Jared Allen. They were well set up beyond that, had all their picks. But if you were trading for these stars, it's definitely going to cost you more in pick equity. Whereas when you sign them outright in free agency, do you need to use a pick to salary dump someone? Maybe if you structure your books right, you do not. Uh, and then you're obviously not dealing away, even in those scenarios, as much pick equity in straight up trades. And so I do think that we're due for a free agency renaissance, um, not immediately. But probably once we get like between 26 through maybe 28 or something, I don't know how long the cap smoothing is going to last and we have to see what the actual number is. But once we start seeing the cap jump like $10 million a year or whatever it winds up being, I do think there's going to be in anticipation of that player signing shorter term deals, not signing extensions at all, maybe even getting to free agency before then, again, using Brown as an example. Uh, final question. Ben Bender fan. Is Cam Thomas going to get the time he deserves and prove he's a star or will it be another year? Um, I don't know. I mean, right now, I have no idea what the Nets are going to look like. If they keep Kyrie and KD, it's going to be at least another year. The better question might be, does he have that star potential? I do think Brooklyn needs his three-point efficiency and volume to climb. Uh, that being said, he has the look and feel of someone who will inevitably down triples at an above-average rate. Um, he diets on a steady stream of off-the-dribble opportunities. And yeah, his shot prior shot profile wants for rim pressure and he does indeed bail out too early on his drives, but it's really hard to quibble too much with a shot selection when he was connecting on 54.8% of his attempts between 10 and 16 feet last year. And then North of 43% on his long twos where you're going to need to see the jump 
is I definitely still think as a passer when you're looking at his drives. And then if you want him to run pick and rolls, he wasn't bad relative to rookies as a scorer. 0.88 points per possession. That was in the 50th percentile. Not exceptional efficiency. You're going to want that number to come up. Maybe him turn the ball over in those situations a little bit less. So you're going to need him to become more a more dynamic pick and roll threat as that passer. And even as the score and then bump up his three point volume, the defensive concerns for sure. But we, we have, I don't want to call them one way stars, but you can be an offensive superstar and still qualify for stardom. I think he is a viable prospect. I wouldn't predict that this is someone who's going to make all-star teams. But if you said that this is someone who winds up being like maybe a perennial six man of the year candidate, or you want to loop him into, Oh, this is someone we think that's going to get on the Tyler hero trajectory. Hero was a better shooter and passer and still is than Thomas, but that off the dribble creation and how comfortable he looks subsisting on it is important. A lot of it's going to be though, what type of agency does he have over the offense? He did have quite a bit of license last year, but that was with, there were some injuries in um, with players in and out of the lineup. And then of course the Kyrie Irving situation, if you have both Durant and Kyrie Irving there, in addition to Ben Simmons, no, that opportunity won't be there. Even with Ben Simmons still there, you're going to want to put the ball in his hands a ton. That's why you need Cam Thomas to sort of, um, you know, nail down his threes, certainly his set threes. If you're not expecting him to hit these off the dribble looks that he does inside the arc, scaling it beyond the arc, okay, fine. Uh, but he needs to be a viable set shooter. Uh, that will do it for us. I hope you enjoyed this mailbag. Please remember to subscribe to us. Hit the subscribe button on YouTube. Like, comment to help the algorithm love, love us back. If this is your first time listening to us via podcast, permanent subscriptions, word of mouth as well. Uh, tell friends, family members, acquaintances, random people on the internet who you know might happen to know or see that like basketball. Uh, we have pleasantly sub-mediocre coverage here for the entire league. Until next time, and as always, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the indelible, the actual prospect who remains on the superstar track. And he deserves the time to prove it and the reps to prove it. Frank Nielakina.